0: you're listening to live from city lights a podcast of readings and archives from city lights books and publishers to learn more visit www.citylights.com
1: hello everybody peter maravales here i'm the events director at city lights on behalf of city lights booksellers and publishers i'd like to welcome you to session two of our day-long celebration of the life and work of Stanislav Grof. This session is called Psychotherapy and Consciousness and offers an overview of the research and main ideas found within the work of Stanislav Grof. This event is being presented by City Lights in conjunction with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and our friends at Synergetic Press. We are inaugurating the release of a new book titled Psyche Unbound, essays in honor of Stanislav Grof. It is edited by Richard Tarnas and Sean Kelly and published by MAPS in conjunction with Synergetic Press. MAPS is a 501c nonprofit research and educational organization founded in 1986 that develops medical, legal, and cultural contexts for people to benefit from the careful uses of psychedelics and marijuana. Synergetic Press is an independent publisher that for over 35 years has produced books to promote mindful discussions around subjects such as ecology, sustainability, psychedelics, consciousness, and cultural studies that inspire both individual and social change. Together, they have produced Psyche Unbound, Essays in Honor of Stanislav Grof, which is really such an extraordinary compilation of 22 essays that honor the path-breaking work of Stanislav Grof he's the world's leading researcher in psychedelic therapy, breathwork, and the exploration of non-ordinary states of consciousness. The book arrives to us in time to honor Dr. Grof's 90th birthday. So it is an auspicious occasion indeed. And such a beautiful, beautiful book, so we encourage you all, I'm going to be posting links in the chat function with which you may purchase the book. Sadly, we are out of signed copies. They disappeared very, very quickly, but you can still purchase them. As we begin this session, I would like to acknowledge that this event is being broadcast from the site of the unceded ancestral homelands of the Ramatish Ohlone peoples. On the peninsula where I stand, eight different dialects of their language were once spoken. It is with respect to those who came before us that I would like to begin our proceedings and offer a moment of silence to stand in recognition of those who came before us and the space which we occupy. So Special thanks goes out to many co-sponsors of this event. They are organizations that are at the forefront of the exploration of the transpersonal dimensions and therapeutic and pharmacological advocacy and research. We are grateful to them for their participation. Our co-sponsors include the California Institute of Integral Studies, TAM Integration, Psychedelic Seminars, the Esalen Institute, Psychedelic Society UK, Psychedelics Today and Double Blind Magazine. The series of events is also being sponsored by the City Lights Foundation, carrying on the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, by encouraging deep literacy, critical thinking through various programs and publications. Our moderator for this session will be Janice Phelps, Janice Fels is a full professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. She has served as the Dean of Faculty at CIIS for the graduate departments in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences. A licensed clinical psychologist, She has held faculty positions in the East-West Psychology Graduate Program, founded by Alan Watts, and the Clinical Psychology Doctoral Program. She is currently the founder and director of the CIIS Center for Psychedelic Therapies and Research, which conducts the first academically accredited professional certificate training program for psychedelic-assisted therapy and research. Dr. Phelps is a board member of the Hefter Research Institute which has conducted psilocybin research since the 1990s. Her recent publications focus on the competencies and training of therapists in psychedelic assisted therapies. Uh, an article in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology and chapter in Advances in Psychedelic Medicine, edited by uh, Winkleman and Cessna, actually, so the reference point for that. Uh, Dr. Phelps is contributing to the development of a national accreditation board for therapists and to methods of scaling effective training programs to meet the burgeoning need for well-trained mental health and medical professionals in the field of psychology and, and the field of psychedelic medicine, rather, I should say. Dr. Phelps maintains a private practice in Mill Valley. Uh, She's gonna be joined by Dr. Michael Mithover. Dr. Mithover has been conducting clinical trials of MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD for over 20 years, sponsored by the uh, Multidisciplinary Association for uh, Psychedelic Studies, MAPS. The inspiration for this research and the approach to facilitating the therapeutic process in these studies stems largely from their experience in the Groff transpersonal training. Dr. Mithover is now a senior medical director at MAPS uh, Public Benefit Corporation. He has been uh, board certified in psychiatry, emergency medicine, and internal medicine, and is a fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and affiliate assistant professor department of of psychiatry and behavioral sciences in the Medical University of South Carolina. Also joining us today is Roshi Joan Halifax, Roshi Joan Halifax is a Buddhist teacher, Zen priest, anthropologist, and pioneer in the field of -of end-of-life care. She is founder, abbot, and head teacher of the Upaya Institute and Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She has received a PhD in medical anthropology and has lectured on the subject of death and dying at many academic institutions and medical centers around the world. She has received a National Science Foundation Fellowship in Visual Anthropology and was an honorary research fellow in medical ethnobotany at Harvard University, as well as a distinguished visiting scholar at the Library of Congress. From 1972 through 1975, she worked with Stanislav Groff at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center with dying cancer patients. She has continued to work with dying people and their families and to teach healthcare professionals and family caregivers the psychosocial, ethical and spiritual practices of caring for the dying. She is director of the project on Being With Dying and founder of the Upaya Prison Project that develops programs on meditation for prisoners. Also joining us on our panel will be Charles Grobe, Dr. Grobe is a professor of psychiatry and biobehavioral sciences and pediatrics and director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Dr. Grobe's research interests include anxiety and mood disorders and also self-medication and substance abuse. The FDA approved one of his phase one studies to study the psychological and physiological effects of MDMA and ayahuasca. Dr. Grobe is also editor of Hallucinogen's A Reader a collection of psychedelic texts covering a wide range of subjects, such as shamanism, society, and psilocybin research. It includes contributions from Terence McKenna, Albert Hoffman, and Ralph Metzner. So also joining us is Jenny Wade. Jenny Wade is Distinguished Professor in the Integral and Transpersonal Psychology Doctoral Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies. She is also a developmental psychologist specializing in the structuring of consciousness and the spontaneous openings and intentional practices that expand human potential. Her research of variations in normal adult consciousness forms the basis of a leadership and organization development consulting practice. Prince Alfred of Leichenstein and the International Peace Foundation recently commissioned her to produce an advanced transpersonal leadership curriculum. And she is a founding board member of Millennium School, a laboratory middle school based on her developmental model. A frequent media presenter, she is the author of Changes of Mind, a Holonomic Theory of the Evolution of Consciousness, Transcendent Sex, When Lovemaking Opens the Veil, and many academic articles. And last but not least, we will also be joined by Paul Groff. Paul Groff is a Canadian research psychiatrist, clinician, and administrator. He has been using psychedelics in the treatment of mood disorders since 1962 and has been involved in transpersonal research for six decades. He utilized holotropic breathwork and psychedelics with clients suffering from severe mood disorders, meditators, and psychiatric residents. In the addition to his therapeutic research and work in North America and Europe, he has worked in the National Institute of Mental Health, usa and as expert at the world health organization in geneva where he chaired the committee on psychotropic substances and presently dr groff is professor of psychiatry at the university of toronto and director of ottawa mood disorder center he is actively involved in teaching the appropriate use of psychedelics for treatment and personal growth dr groff has received several international awards Uh, for his research, and he has authored and co-authored over 500 academic publications and three books. So please welcome now Dr. Janice Phelps to moderate this session.
2: Thank you, Peter, very much for those introductions, and welcome to this very esteemed and honored panel speaking on behalf of the beautiful Feshrift book that we're all encouraging you folks to get yourselves out there in our audience of almost 280 people. For those of you who missed the prior panel, I strongly suggest you be on the lookout for it on YouTube. It was wonderful to see the repartee between Stan, Brigida, and the panelists at that time. Wonderful session. Uh, Thank you to all of the panelists who were there for the first session. So here we are launching into session number two. Our plan is to have all of these learned major figures in the field be speaking to you for 10 minutes each, and we hope to have a good half hour, 20 minutes to do a question and answer period with you. So if we do get a chance to do that, I encourage our audience here to put in questions into the chat once we get rolling. And if we have time, we'll get to a couple of those. So I'd like to pass the baton to Dr. Michael Mithofer who with his dearly beloved wife, Annie Mithofer have conspired with Rick Doblin to bring forth incredibly strong data to support the viability of MDMA assisted psychotherapy and Michael will share with you the lineage that he connects to through the work of Dr. Stanislav Groff. So Dr. Mithofer, take it away.
0: Thank you, Jazz., I'll, I'll have to plead guilty to conspiracy in, the, in that case. Um, yeah, thank you. I, it's, I'm really grateful to have this chance for all of us to express our uh, appreciation, gratitude, and indebtedness to and love for Stan. Uh, it was wonderful to see Stan Brigitte in the other session, and you know, really striking to hear what a impressive group of accomplished people this morning talking about how much Stan's work and Stan's presence has influenced their lives and and their work, and it's that, certainly true for me. So I'd, I'd like to share a little bit about that. Um, you know, Rick. Doblin this morning mentioned the first conversation he and I had 22 years ago that got us started on doing the MDMA research, and that conversation never would have happened if it hadn't if we hadn't both trained with Stan, really, and I certainly, I don't think I would have had the idea to do our research, and I definitely know I wouldn't have known how to do the, how to be with people in the way we've learned if it weren't for Stan, so... I, in my section in the book, I've given some um, specific examples of the ways Stan demonstrated and taught these lessons in the in the training. So it's it's you know he's written so much and spoken so eloquently and um, and influenced so many people that way. I wanted to share a little bit about the what it was like in the training and and the way that um, he shared it with us there. So I'm not I've got specific examples in the book, but. I want to just say a little bit about some of the, I think, the fundamentals of what Stan taught and the other teachers in the Graf training, that partly because it's fun to share appreciation and, and I like to talk about these things, but the other part of it is, I, as we move into this period of rapid growth in psychedelic research and therapy and, and interest in this area, part of our concern as we train a lot more therapists to do this research and ultimately to do the therapy is um, that we not lose sight of these fundamental lessons that you know Stan has taught, discovered many of them, but they also come from ancient traditions uh, that Stan has always acknowledged. And so, this the heart of these lessons that we've had the privilege of learning, largely from Stan. In our case. I think it's really important that that not be lost as this field accelerates, uh, so rapidly. So, um, I'll just mention a little bit about what I think those are, you know, I, in, I, in 19, around 1990, I'd been practicing emergency medicine for 10 years and I was longing for a different way to, to work with people. And that's when I came across Dan's work. And, um, ended up applying for psychiatry residency and the Groff training at the same time. And I, I basically did those simultaneously over the next few years. So I, you know, I got to the training and even back then, of course, Stan had already published a lot and, and was clearly a pioneer. So I, I arrived at the six day, um, holotropic breathwork transpersonal, um, training with Stan and, um, you know, I figured, well, maybe he'll like flying in a helicopter for a couple hours or something, show up and give give some lectures and then, you know, head out and leave the details to the staff. Well, nothing could have been further from the truth. You know, by the end of the week, I found myself schlepping music speakers with Stan, carrying them out to his car. He was, you know, usually the last person on the floor working with people at the end of the day. He was usually the last person in the hot tub, uh, you know, joking and having interesting discussions and playing very confusing games. So, you know, it was what I realized, there's several of the things that I want to share that I realized is one is Stan, you know, did not come up with these theories, this cartography of the psyche, the idea of the coaxes. Yeah, he has an incredible intellect, but they didn't come not something he cooked up with his intellect i saw directly every day the way he discovered these things by being present with people with great curiosity great patience and, and over time and i got to see how much that commitment that willingness and that curiosity could lead to discoveries about healing and to lead to episodes of healing that never would have happened if if he hadn't taken that time, been such an astute observer, but also had such heart and connection and dedication to supporting people and such respect for their, the individual's own inner healing intelligence. So, you know, this is as many people have said, Stan's a true scientist. This is all based on empirical observations. Um, and he didn't, unlike so many quote scientists, he didn't ignore data that that didn't fit with his the model he'd been taught about about consciousness and the psyche, he followed the data. So it's that groundedness in not only respect for the individual's inner healing intelligence, but also realizing that comes with a commitment to be, if you're gonna encourage somebody to go deeply into these states, it requires a commitment to support them through whatever it takes. And sometimes that doesn't fit well into a, a neat nine to five schedule. So, um, it, it, you know, I saw direct demonstrations of being able to watch Stan and the other wonderful trainers have the patience and the love and the curiosity to, to, to stay with people and to be curious about how their process was going to unfold. So, I saw the value of not being too directive. Uh, But I also saw the importance of being present and being willing to step in and and let people know they aren't alone um, when the time comes. So the other thing that was really striking was the way these processes continue to unfold over time, whether it's with psychedelics or with holotropic breathwork, I saw again and again the importance of integration of not realizing whatever comes up in these holotropic states is gonna keep unfolding. And it's so important to have a support and take take the time to help integrate those experiences. So um, again, I I got to learn that by directly observing Stan and others, other trainers um, being with people hour after hour. So I, um, and you know, that informs uh, very deeply the way we do the, uh, our therapy and the MDMA trials. So, um, forever grateful to, to Stan for what he shared with us, and um, forever hopeful that we can keep those uh, important lessons front and center as this field continues to unfold. How's that for time, Janice?
2: Wow, you did it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah.
0: I could go on, but I could also shut up.
2: Yeah, I think you've got a couple more minutes if you want to nail it in, it in some other way for a minute, um, minute and a half, go for it.
0: Um, I, I think I'll stop there. Thank you.
2: Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. That was heartfelt, scientific, healing, and moving to here. So thank you. We'll go next to Roshi Joan Halifax.
3: Thank you, Janice. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. For me, this is a historical gathering marking Stan's extraordinary contribution to understanding the nature of the human psyche and also uh, the courage that he manifested from uh, his work in Czechoslovakia to the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, to the world of West Coast, and then to the world of the world, the whole world, to see this resurgence of the application of entheogens of plant medicine to uh, the healing process of individuals. And I just want to mention, uh, yes, I'm a Buddhist priest. No, I uh, am not involved with uh, hallucinogens or entheogens at this time in my life. I was thoroughly involved for a a long time and um, benefited enormously, uh, met uh, many threshold experiences in the course of uh, being with Stan, ingesting, Uh, the medicine, so to speak, and also uh, bearing witness to the experience of others and seeing the uh, power of this kind of work in terms of not only the transformation of an individual's life, but also the transformation uh, process that uh, could unfold at the social and environmental level if we could open our minds to what we learn from the psychedelic experience. And honestly, you know, I'm, I'll be 80 this year. So, uh, and I think most of you know, I'm uh, Stan's ex-wife and an ex-wife. Uh, it was beautiful to see him and Brigitte together and also just to watch uh, Stan's mind work and to uh, realize that he is a kind of a treasure house of experience, but also um, uh, that he is a person of phenomenal imagination. And I know so many people have been touched by Stan's work. Um, His cartography of the human psyche uh, still informs uh, what I do as a practitioner. And I know Stan as a true scientist, but also a, a true healer. You know, a person who is genuinely kind and genuinely concerned about uh, the well-being of others, and also about formation of character—that uh, is to say, you know, what we are shaping or what is opening up in the course of the so-called psychedelic experience. Another thing about Stan that I think is uh, so remarkable, and this is um, a phrase from Gregory Bateson, uh, who was also a friend of Stan's and a friend of mine. Stan had that capacity to see the patterns that connect. And I think that's why he was so resonant with uh, Joe Campbell, um, really appreciated the work of Murcia Iliadi, of also uh, the German ethnologists um, and uh, your other European ethnologists who were really looking for these kind of threads uh, that uh, uh, are in the psyche cross-culturally. So um, I I wanted to say a few things about my own uh, background. Uh, I was um, deeply appreciative of uh, psychedelics prior to meeting Stan. So it wasn't those. though Stan initiated me into that world. Um, And when we met, I had this very, you know, uh, what could I say? Uh, Overwhelming feeling of resonance uh, with uh, Stan's work, but also his view. And um, I, at this point uh, had returned from Africa where I had been doing field work among the Dogon people, this was in 1969, um, where I was documenting a rite of passage that takes place once every 53 to 60 years. And in the process of that very extraordinary time in the Sahel and the Southern Sahara with these, very archetypal people. I remember I was sitting in a overhang in a cliff, uh, almost like a cliff dwelling, watching this huge ceremony unfold. And I realized um, uh, with some dismay that in the West, uh, there were not rites of passage that allowed for individuals to go through a maturation process in terms of psyche, but also in terms of their responsibility and role uh, in uh, the society that we're part of. And that uh, this became even more vivid for me uh, when I came back from Africa and I worked as a medical anthropologist at the University of Miami School of Medicine. And there um, it was so clear to me that the most marginalized people in that medical system, in fact, were people who were dying. So when Stan and I got married and he brought me into the project of uh, uh, the LSD psychotherapy um, with uh, people who were dying of cancer, it was deeply congruent with uh, my own views, my own work, and actually my own concerns about how do people meet a threshold experience like that of dying in a way that is generative. And needless to say, uh, Stan's view on this um, uh, was very inspiring for me. And I realized that this work with dying people was in fact an opportunity to engage in a contemporary, Rite of passage with people who were in a threshold experience, um, who were facing the the unknown, the mystery of death, many of whom were suffering profoundly psychologically or physically. And that um, their participation in this particular research project, which was under the aegis of the National Institute of Mental Health, could provide an entry into the dying experience, which would be fundamentally transformative. And uh, one of the texts that we studied um, uh, was by uh, a Dutch ethnographer named Arnold van Hennep. And he had basically articulated uh, rites of passage in terms of three phases. And these phases mapped very much onto what uh, we did with the dying people. And one was the first phase is that of separation. And there was always uh, a period of very intensive uh, preparation of the person who was to um, receive uh, the hallucinogen, to receive the 600 micrograms of Sandoz LSD very deep, very intensive preparation, which very importantly included um, establishing a a relationship of trust. And I think this is one of the most important parts of uh, the process is how uh, this is not just checking in to a kind of motel six psychedelic experience. It really has to do with some kind of sense of karmic connection. This is what I always felt when Stan and I were uh, working with dying people. And it meant that um, the person who was undergoing this process um, uh, in a way had to leave what was uh, just prior to their, uh, their experience, that is their family, their home, their situation. And um, to uh, be willing to enter into a threshold experience, um, where their psychological defenses would be uh, uh, basically deconstructed, and where their psyche would uh, become exposed to them. And this kind of threshold experience, you know, uh, from from my point of view, was um, very uh, powerful. I, I I know sometimes we said. Um, a bad trip is really a good trip. People went through their biological birth experience or they went through some archetypal experience um, that was about uh, death and rebirth. And um, the rebirth part always made me really happy (laughs) because people's view of what it means to die changed so profoundly. And that view of course is something that would be taken into the third phase of the rite of passage. And that is the integration, um, what was just mentioned, how important the uh, process that the person experienced could be integrated into how they viewed the dying process, how they viewed pain, the importance of their relationships and what death meant to them. So I feel very blessed to have been part of that project and also very blessed to have lived long enough to see the resurgence of this work. And I also know that every stick is two ends for all the power that uh, the work in psychedelics evokes. That power has two valences, if you will, at least. You know, one of those valences in the, in the direction of profound and positive transformation And the other is of disintegration and a deep challenge. And one of the things that I discovered um, in doing the work uh, with Stan is how we had uh, deeply underestimated the landscape of the human psyche. And Stan's mapping of that landscape, of course, has profoundly affected uh, my own experience as a meditation practitioner, but has uh, touched the lives of thousands upon thousands of people. And I am, uh, again, grateful to have been able to experience that work firsthand. And then to, as I enter my 80th year this year, and Stan is turning 90, uh, to um, uh, have this time of profound enjoyment, seeing his work culminating uh, while he is still in his body. Finally, I just wanna mention something else. My own uh, good friend, collaborator and student, um, Dr. Tony Back, who is a renowned oncologist uh, at the University of Washington. And we've worked together for many years, uh, teaching clinicians on contemplative care of the dying. He's put together a project, which I think is very important for healthcare workers in all the healthcare uh, areas um, who are completely burned out and using psilocybin as an adjunct or as uh, uh, a means for assisting with the transformation of these uh, clinicians experience of profound moral distress and of burnout. So I'm very excited about what Tony is doing and looking forward, to, uh, He one thing he mentioned He said that for only 30 places in that research project, there were around 1000 applications. So it just shows you um, both what healthcare providers are are facing in uh, today's pandemic and the need for this kind of transformative experience in the lives of those who who serve those
2: who are critically
3: ill. So thank you, Janice. Oh.
2: Thank you, Roshi Joan, very powerful, very powerful. And thank you for the work you have done with those people in the liminal place of being at the threshold of dying. And while as a Buddhist leader and teacher in this whole country on this planet, you know they're they're in some illusion at that moment and you're helping them with duality and you're walking the razor's edge and helping people understand about the non-dual larger cosmos and our connection to it, but at the same time, digging deep and helping people who are suffering deeply as a Bodhisattva does. Thank you. Thank you so much, Janice. Deep bow to you. And on your heels here, quite compatibly, but this was unplanned, Dr. Charles Grobe has been revivifying the research in this country in a very big way on giving psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy to those who are close to death door. Charlie can tell you about that. There was a break in that kind of research for a while, just recently, and he and his learned colleague, Dr. Anthony Bossis and Dr. Brian Anderson and others are bringing it forward. But I'm sure there's more that Dr. Grobe has in mind here for you to hear from him, given his connection with Stan. So all yours, Charlie.
4: Thank thank you, Janice. And uh, I very much appreciate being invited to participate in in this event, honoring the life and work of Stan Groff. Stan has had a very profound influence on the trajectory of my career, dating back quite a long time. Going back to the early 70s, I was uh, kind of out of school without direction and uh, not knowing what to do. And uh, a friend invited me to accompany him to a meeting of the Association of Humanistic Psychology, where a young... Czech researcher working in Maryland was presenting his work with treating individuals with terminal illness with a psychedelic treatment session. So, so I went, went to this meeting not expecting much and was just blown away by the, really by the brilliance of, 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 of the work and the and the potential this model had to really facilitate uh, healing. And I walked out of that lecture inspired to uh, work it, 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 with this kind of population, using this treatment model, and, uh, and this all came to be. I, I went back to school and five years later, found myself in medical school where um, I was in a, uh, a research methods class, and we all had an assignment to uh, present a paper in, in the re- relatively recent literature and, you know, explain the methodology and the, um, the findings and their pertinence. So I right away knew what I would, I would choose. I chose Stan's 1973 publication in the International Journal of Pharmacopsychiatry, reviewing his findings at Spring Grove, where he, where upwards to 70% of his subjects experienced a very significant improvement in their quality of life improved mood diminished anxiety even diminished uh, pain perception and so i you know i organized my talk very excited to see what my colleagues would make of this uh, topic I presented it. I thought fairly well, fairly clearly, and I waited for questions and comments, and there was absolutely nothing—not not a peep, not a word. And I realized this was a taboo topic; that was completely uh, out of bounds at that at that particular period of time. But you know, I, I continued to to plug away, and um, several years later, I found myself in a neurology residency, not particularly happy, and. Uh, browsing in the medical bookstore, I came across Stan's first two books, realms of the human unconscious and his collaboration with Roshi Joan, uh, human encounters with death. And I devoured those books over a weekend and came out of it realizing, okay, I need to get back into a path that would allow me to work with this population using psychedelics. And, uh, so I found my way into psychiatry, where right away I was again uh, struck by point disillusionment as to where the field was at, as it was kind of slowly transitioning from cl- classic psychoanalytic uh, theory into uh, the beginnings of psychobiology. And although there were some interesting facets, it was not 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 what I was looking for. And I was thinking of going back into a, uh, internal medicine residency, but uh hadn't had a uh had a thought that i should reach out to stan and i wrote a letter and mailed it care of his most recent publisher that had published lsd psychotherapy asking him if he thought there was any hope for psychedelics and psychiatry and he actually got back to me about a month later i i received a response he said i'm flying now on an intercontinental flight to uh, Australia for a meeting of the international transpersonal meeting. But I, I just received before I left your letter, it was forwarded to me and uh, my thoughts on the future of psychedelics that although these are grim times, I do retain some optimism that in the future it may be feasible once again to, to do this work. And that was enough to keep me in place, plug away, get my credentials and ultimately found myself in a, uh, uh, situation where I was able to uh, pull together a, a protocol and, and the funding and the necessary collaboration to uh, conduct the, the the first study of of um, uh, using a psychedelic treatment model. We use psilocybin to treat uh, individuals with advanced stage cancer anxiety, and much of it was really based on Stan. It was the first study of this sort since Stan was forced to shut down his work at Spring Grove in the early 70s. And um, we successfully completed our study, published in a good journal, uh, similar studies at Hopkins and at NYU followed further reinforcing the value of of this model that that Stan had been one of the early pioneers with and and I should say, just recently, as Janice mentioned, we our group is putting together a multi-site study uh, where we will be administering psilocybin to individuals with severe existential demoralization in a palliative care setting. We'll be working with palliative practitioners in a collaborative manner, teaching the method to them. So... You know, to get ready uh, for this event today, I looked at, last night I looked at an interview I conducted with Stan some years ago that was published in a a book of interviews of the psychedelic elders that I I published along with um, uh, Roger Walsh and uh, with a good deal of assistance from my old friend Gary Bravo. Uh, Looking at Stan's um, interview, I I, I kind of reflected back to the early days, when you know Stan actually conducted arguably more psychedelic treatment sessions than anyone else in human history. And when I interviewed him about uh, 17 years ago, he, uh, he he reflected that from the early 50s when he began his career to the to around 66, 67 when he moved from Czechoslovakia. To the United States, and then his work at, at the Maryland State Psychiatric Research Center at Spring Grove, he conducted in the neighborhood of, uh, well, at least four thousand uh, treatment sessions, which I think far exceeds uh, a- a- anyone else in human history, and 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 the, and the uh, the cumulative experience he had his observations. Uh, they really went into his uh, treatment model and really becomes a, uh, a template for which modern researchers, now that we have this new opportunity to, uh, to, to implement psychedelic treatments again, but I think it's very, very critical to learn, to, to, to learn the lessons of the past, learn, learn from the elders, including what Stan, you know, Stan's findings, his, his collective, collective experience. So, um, uh, I think very, very important to, to really be uh, a fully um, just fully versed in, in, in the range of uh, kind of activities he, he engaged in. I think to close off, I um, thought I'd read maybe the final paragraph in the essay I provided for uh, Psyche Unbound, uh, really honoring Stan's uh, work. Let me just finish here with saying, uh, from Stan's knowledge of the discoveries of his peers and those far and wide who preceded him, along with his advanced knowledge of world cultures, he has evolved a model treatment of conscious dying that may give us an anticipation of life, of light at the end of the tunnel. Thanks to the pioneers of the field of psychedelics, most notably Stan Groff, we now have the opportunity and the tools to once again open up the psychedelic treatment model and determine if the early studies using psychedelics to treat the existential crisis of advanced medical illness can continue to be replicated and if so, be made available in safe, sanctioned and skilled treatment settings to those profoundly in need of psychological and spiritual healing at the end of life. This is the hope and the promise of psychedelics. To Stan Grof goes much of the credit for our now having this remarkable opportunity before us. It is now up to us to implement an optimal use of these mysterious and remarkable compounds in as respectful and careful a manner as those who came before would expect. So again, great appreciation for Stan's many accomplishments, his many contributions. One I might add also is his finding that the experience of a powerful mystical level experience or psycho-spiritual epiphany during the course of the many-hour session was often predictive of a therapeutic outcome. This work has been replicated in particular by studies at Hopkins led by Roland Griffiths, finding that under optimal conditions, it's it's quite feasible to optimizing set and setting will create a, a a, a context where a powerful mystical level experience may, 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 you know, occurs. And these tend to be predictive of therapeutic outcomes, both with populations of individuals approaching the end of life, as well as with other clinical patient populations, inclus- including those with alcohol use disorders. So, I mean, Stan had an enormous impact on trajectory in my career. I'm forever grateful of the opportunity to, uh, to have come a, across his work and the inspiration that uh, I I, I gained from that and uh, allowing me to uh, be involved in what is now, I think a very uh, opportune moment in history where once again, will be able to work with psychedelics. Uh, In in that interview I conducted with uh, Stan, he also reflected that uh, when he moved from Czechoslovakia to the United States, one week before his arrival at Johns Hopkins, where he had been offered a position, a report was published in in a journal on chromosomal damage caused by LSD, which completely derailed the, the momentum of psychedelic research at that time. Even, even though that, that, that study was thoroughly debunked, it's really taken us now upwards to half a century to get back on track, to be able to kind of pick up the, the torch that Stan has handed off, carry, carry the field forward and really, um, you know t- t- take the opportunity to facilitate the, the profound healing that, that these compounds under optimal conditions can uh, can, can, can facilitate. So again, my my great appreciation to Stan, and uh, great admiration and uh, acknowledgement that uh, what the, the path that he started on many many years ago is now the path that uh, Michael and myself and and others are are, are now go, going down, and also ready to hand this, the torch off to to the next generation behind. So. Uh, I think now uh, we we can learn from lessons of the past, and um, and I think take take this field into the future, where I think it has a great potential to uh, contribute to the uh, to the well being of uh, individuals, families, and the greater collective. So thank you very much for this opportunity to share this moment. Thank you, Charlie. Uh,
2: well well articulately put in honor of Stan and breaking trail ahead of you and your work, I'd like to give you a shout out for your courage and your bravery in staying in mainstream academics at one of the most esteemed universities in this country and the effect it had on your personal life and your professional life. You took dings academically when you were writing about ayahuasca or when you were writing about psilocybin or LSD, you bravely held forth. I look at you as creating a huge, huge pathway forward for the people who are younger than we are. So I also wanna acknowledge you, Charlie Grobe. Thank you for those sacrifices and selfless service that you did for the field. And you did it from within academia, no small, feet.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you. So another person who's in academia uh, will speak to you now, Dr. Jenny Way. We I have the honor of being a colleague of Jenny's at CIIS, and Jenny has written profoundly and riskfully about transcendent sexuality. How many books talk about that, except through some of the yoga traditions. So Dr. Wade, you also took some dings professionally, and here you sit being honored, honoring Stan. Please go ahead. Thank you, Janice.
5: Um, Yes, although Stan inspired a lot of other people to go into psychedelics, um, instead of drugs, I went for the sex. (laughs) Many people sort of brush by the references to sex in Stan's writing, but they caught my attention. And when I began having profound altered state experiences during just ordinary, uh, otherwise ordinary lovemaking sessions, it piqued my curiosity. And so I began researching ecstatic, transcendent altered state experiences that are triggered by lovemaking. A few early researchers had mentioned the fact that these kinds of things can happen during sex, but Stan was the only living person that I even had access to or knew about who seemed to say, Oh yeah, and you know, they were so commonplace in his world, he was much more interested in psychotropics and then developing holotropic breath work. But um When I decided to do a real study on this, uh, because so many other people had just mentioned it in passing but only with anecdotal evidence, Stan was the only person I could go to who knew anything about it and I thought had records from his own research about it. Unfortunately, he didn't. His house had just burned down and he had lost almost everything. But Stan gave me the time and took me seriously at a time when many other researchers of altered states, my colleagues uh, in the Bay Area, were very discouraging about doing any kind of research with sex. Uh, they said, nobody is ever gonna take you seriously again. That is such a taboo topic. You know, This is gonna be a career killer for you. Go for something else. After talking to Stan, who really encouraged me, I thought, no, I'm just gonna see about this because Maslow, Margaret Lasky, other people had turned up these anecdotes about people having profound spiritual experiences during sex. And if you really look at the studies, any large sex study that asks questions about what really was going on besides the physical aspect will, has turned up stories about these kinds of experiences. And the same thing is true in the spiritual literature. You will find that many people who had profound mystical experiences had them while they were making love, but nobody had collected these in a systematic way. So the essay of mine in this honoring of stands is uh, an article where I collected a lot of the data on these wonderful sexual experiences and was able to map it against the cartography he had developed of altered states. He had developed his cartography based on uh, working with people with psychedelics, with holotropic breath work, talking to people about sexual experiences and other stories that he had collected. And he came up with this massive cartography that classified and defined different kinds of altered states all the ones that he'd encountered in the wide variety of experiences that he had examined. Of course, people deliberately cultivate altered states during sex using tantric practices or Taoist methods. And some people deliberately enhance their sexual experience by using psychotropic drugs at the same time, uh, especially cannabis. But in fact, sex is inherently a natural trigger for altered states. And so my sample was ordinary people who were not using drugs at the time they had these experiences and who were having sex with a partner because these kinds of experiences can happen when you're pleasuring yourself without a partner. So I wanted to collect as many stories as I could and find out what was the range of altered state experiences that could be afforded Bisex for people. And I chose Stan's schema to map those against. And as it turned out, sexual experiences map against 75% of the distinct experiences that Stan had identified. The most common ones are the ones where there is some kind of an expansion of the person's sense of personal agency or the sense of self. And that's one of the markers of an altered state, the sense of agency changes. And the two other clinical markers are that your temporal or sense of time changes and that your spatial sense changes from what we consider culturally normative for adults in Western societies. When you go into the hospital, if you've had any kind of an unusual experience, those are one of the, those are the first three realms of reality uh, that they'll check you for? Are you oriented commonly to what we think of as normal reality in the West? Well, all of these things can and do change during sex. The most common one is to have the sense of self break down so that it includes the partner, and you can't really tell at some points who's doing what to whom. You begin to lose your sense of self and sometimes your sense of body boundaries too. So your spatial orientation changes. So I'd just like to mention very briefly that when these kinds of things happen during sex, sex goes from being sort of a multi, uh, from a, a single dimensional, mainly physical uh, engagement to something that is multi-sensory. Uh, as one of the people in my sample said, it's like having the Klieg lights suddenly turned on And the experience becomes much more important and much more compelling than orgasm, even the most exquisite orgasm you've ever had. In fact, people were distracted annoyingly by orgasms during these kinds of sexual experiences. They were so big. One woman said, I just don't wanna have that happen because it's a distraction. The kinds of experiences are those that are phenomenologically virtually identical to experiences recognized as signs of attainment in different spiritual traditions. For example, people take what could be described as shamanic journeys going through other worlds or also traveling above this world environments. They become uh, possessed by power animals. They may encounter beneficent or demonic supernatural forms or deities, uh, a third figure that's oftentimes likened to the Holy Ghost, for example. They uh, experience Kundalini and other subtle forms of energetic change. Often that can be very, very large, uh, seeing lights, sweating profusely, going into spontaneous movements, the mu- mu- uh, Kriyas and Mudras, uh, recognizing Hindu practice going into glossolalia or speaking in tongues that's commonly recognized in uh, evangelistic uh, Christian practices. People can feel possessed by deities, often sexual deities uh, like Cernanus or uh, Kali or Pan, Dionysus. People can fully live past lives, often with great detail and they can travel in time, sometimes to the future. And then finally, uh, resembling the contemplative traditions, people can have complete non-dual experiences of the cosmic void or complete non-dual experiences of unity with the absolute or with God. These experiences people have during sex have the very same transformational qualities that psychedelic experiences can have and that spiritual epiphanies had. There may be some initial disruption or destabilization because these people are just having sex. And the ones I talked to were not trying to bring these states about, they were surprised by them. So they didn't really have a way to understand what had happened to them. And many of them didn't have an easy way to integrate those. And they certainly didn't have people who were trained to help them with it, which is one reason I did this research. 44% of the people in my sample experienced a spiritual awakening, and many of these people had been atheistic or agnostic, and the experience that they had sent them later on to a spiritual quest. Others changed their religion to something that was more congruent with the kind of experience that they had had. 43% evinced some kind of sign of personal growth, getting rid of self-limiting beliefs, uh, changing jobs, getting out of uh, relationships that were worn out, um, going for a larger version of themselves. 25% found that it, it positively affected all of their relationships, not just the relationship with a partner that they had. 18% of people developed an entirely new worldview. They suddenly realized that there was more to reality, a greater reality than they had comprehended before. 13% decided that sex was a sacred thing and that they had been misusing it previously in their lives and changed their way they related to other people sexually and the way they related to sexuality itself. And 9% of the people in the sample were people who had been sexually abused as children and had often been in adult se- uh, sexually traumatic relationships and found themselves completely healed, able to have orgasms, able to enjoy sex. And one of these uh, people even went on to become a sexual surrogate to help other people with sexual trauma. I'd like to tell you just one brief story about one of these experiences as an illustration.
2: A student- Jenny, then we'll need to end after this story. This is
5: quick. A student's girlfriend had had a very frightening altered state experience during sex. And then she had become ill with uh, constant and uncontrollable vomiting. What had happened during sex was that she'd started trembling violently and she experienced it as her soul leaving her body. Her point of view got farther and farther away from her body and the farther and faster it went, the more she thought she was just going to die. The student, her partner, told her to trust herself and just be open to whatever was happening during the experience and let it happen. And when she did, he could perceive a lot of energy boiling off of her body and see her eyes moving rapidly behind her closed eyelids. She herself began to feel surrounded by God's presence and no longer feeling that she was dying. She said she knew throughout her entire being how totally precious and beloved she was and that everybody is, and that all the things that she'd regretted in her life made absolutely no difference in this flood of unconditional love. The total love and experience uh, and acceptance that she had ran counter to all of her conscious beliefs about a judging wrathful God who would condemn her for not measuring up to whatever her purpose in life had been. When the experience ended, she was euphoric for about an hour before becoming violently sick to her stomach and the vomiting lasted for hours and hours, which is what brought them to me to see. It turned out when I was talking to her that she'd harbored a deep sense of shame and guilt over being fired by a charity she was working for overseas that took care of orphaned refugee children. She believed that work had been her mission in life. And when she was fired, everything in her meaning system collapsed. The metaphor that she used for coping with her guilt about that was that she had swallowed her guilt and pushed it down into her stomach in order to be able to go on. And now, after this experience, there was no need. This was the old guilt coming up, coming out of her. And now she realized she was completely healed. And that's what transcendent sex can do. These normal experiences, they give you a glimpse of the divine that's always present in all of us. They can show you, this is what you are. This is where you're going. This is where you've always been. This is what your true nature is. If you open yourself to God, and you can do it through sex rather than having the feelings and ideas about sex we often do. You find that you're divine at the same time. So Stan's work, especially in his classification schema, revealed the same kinds of insights and experiences. The paths, whether it's psychedelic, whether it's homotropic breath work, whether it's spiritual practices, or whether it's just ordinary sex may vary But the human system is wired for a particular set of these same ultimate transcendent and ecstatic
2: destinations. Mm -hmm. Powerful Jenny, thank you. Thank you for centering this human right to not just fulfilling sex or orgasms that might be distracting, but to the possibility of connecting to the larger absolute, the non-dual, and remember what what we are in such a profound way. It's a birthright, what you're talking about. And may humanity grow in the direction you just posited by extending Stan's cartography and adding to it from other arenas in your own training. Thank you so much. May you continue with this work. Thank you. So Dr. Paul Groff, no surprise, is related to Dr. Stan Groff. As many of you know, Paul brings a particular perspective as a family member and indeed a brother of Stan. So Paul, please go ahead.
6: Well, in this special homage to Stan, I, I've been wondering what would be best to cover. And um, there's several topics came through my mind. And I concluded that because the topic is psychotherapy and, and his legacy, then I should perhaps try to contrast Stan's approach and the whole. Legacy with the traditional approaches in in treatment and and in psychotherapy as well it was a bit tricky because i'm I'm the last and I did not know of course what uh, others will will cover and uh, it, it was a just beautiful beautiful panoply of of experiences how people got into um, Transpersonal approaches in in death, sex, birth, and uh, so I have an easier um, task because Jenny, for example, has already wonderfully outlined the 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 whole variety of of transpersonal experiences that that uh, relate to what I'm going to say, and, and I don't have to. I don't have to um, outline them. We debated, I think before we started, we debated about the order, whether I should go last or Jenny go last. And of course I suggested that ladies goes first. That's part of my upbringing. I was getting also from Stan. But uh, I was very worried that after this wonderful presentation, Jenny is going to spend 10 minutes talking about that nobody will pay any attention. We'll see. We'll see how it goes and how it it comes across. So what I'm going to try is to contrast stance approach to psychotherapy combined with psychedelics or, or hotropic breathwork or other modalities of inducing non-oreal states of consciousness with, with the traditional. Now, to characterize very briefly the contemporary approach, I would have to say that it's based on certain unproven assumption. One assumption, of course, is that if you struggle with emotional problems depression anxiety addiction there's something wrong in the brain and and probably the most recent version is that there's something wrong with the neurochemistry and it is if you if you study that the only problem is that there is just has not been any evidence that it's it's related to what happens in treatment i mean the 55 years that i follow this I have not seen any indication that if let's say depression or anxiety is related to, to deficiency of serotonin that when people respond to treatment, this improves and if they don't respond, it doesn't. So nobody showed some of the basic things. And I think, uh, and it's also, uh, I think frustrating that even in, in psychological, not strictly medical approach, even in psychological approach, you find now that often half of the textbooks of psychology are actually neurotransmitters, as if it was clearly related, and that often people study neurochemical changes during psychotherapy, assuming that if there is a change, it it means that that's, that's the mechanism of action. And so... Stence research and my research certainly did not support these kinds of assumptions. And um, therefore, I think up to this point until very recently, holotropic breathwork, and also of course, using the psychedelics as as a enhancer to psychotherapy, it, it, it had to be practiced outside of the traditional academic situation. Now, this is changing. You know that um, there are some studies starting, even I think in in Johns Hopkins, they they are now planning a study of holotropic breathwork and the efficacy. How is this traditional approach, how does it differ from from standard approach? And I, I seem primarily um, kind of five major differentiating differentiating aspects, and it probably makes sense to say it at at this end of this this panel to round it up. I think the first thing that differentiates Stan approach very much is the cartography of of consciousness, of human consciousness, that kind of poured out out of the the Patients, the, the clients that, that he worked in and eventually had to accept it and had to classify that into, into categories. And it went far beyond Freud because Freud, of course, assumes that the human consciousness starts with birth, but it went even far beyond Jung because the collective consciousness presumably connects people and, and, and deals with archetypal forces, but stance observations went far beyond that. They relate to the whole universe, to universal mind, to unified field. It shows that we still don't have a single expression to describe this, this, this area. Shows how, how much we are still at the beginning of, of, of investigating uh, these areas. Um, the second, I think, characteristic point of, of Stan's concepts, uh, I think, is the recognition of a self healing process that the mind brain unit um, is a complex system which has profound self-regulating approaches. And often the most important issue in in therapy is actually identify what is in the way and get get out of the way and help it get out of the way, whatever is um, blocking the the self-regulation. And that means that unlike in the traditional approach, it's, the therapist that tries to intellectually figure out the meaning of of the symptoms and explain it to the patient. And of course, as I'll hopefully give you an example, it often doesn't work at all, unless things heal spontaneously. With Stan, I think the principle, the guiding principle is the healer inside. uh, That's what's guiding the the process. The third point I think that is important is that the symptoms are primarily opportunity for healing. Now, in traditional psychiatry, if you know anything about DSM of the Psychiatric Bible, the problems are essentially described simply by set of symptoms, but that's supposed to be the definition of the problems. And the t- treatment is an attempt to suppress the symptoms, which of course does not help with the self-regulation, the self-healing. So in, in stance approach, you activate it. You activate it by music, by breath. In some situations you may activate it by psychedelic, but that's, that's the process that takes place. I think the the next point, the fourth point I think, in my mind that separates Stan's approach is the role of spirituality in, in the therapeutic process. In the traditional uh, approach, spiritual, spirituality is out. That's in, not in the mat. That in, not it's not in the traditional mat. And therefore, it's associated with pathology. Now, this has something to do with, with history of psychiatry. You, you have to keep in mind that some of these concepts started a century ago in loony bins in Central Europe, where uh, whichever, if, you were, if you just had depression or anxiety, you were treated by the neurologist in the city. But if you went into loony bin, you were really out. And so people assumed that that if, if whatever you're experiencing was, was abnormal, delusional. But it's now very clear, particularly with the expanded map, that spirituality is important and normal part of, of, of the consciousness, consciousness map, and it has important role in healing. Well, I think the striking, most striking examples are the uh, mystical experiences how they can completely change the the feeling that the person has about themselves, about their purpose in life, about their direction in life. And in this kind of a short overview of of the the differences, I think the next, the last point I'm gonna mention is that stand concept is fortunately congruent, fully congruent with the advances in the science that took place during the past century. The advances, the radical, completely paradigmatic changes in quantum physics, uh, astronomy, biology, chemistry. Uh, And Stan, I think, took a great pain in uh, making sure, that there, there is' congruence this is, and for that reason, I my personal feeling is that the understanding and appreciation of of the impact of the concept that's still Stan developed stand developed is just at the beginning that with the expansion, you know, mm-hmm. moving the paradigm, the worldview further. It's, it, we're going to be more and more appreciative what what Stan contri- contributed in in his approach.
2: We have two like, minutes, Paul.
6: Okay. Well, like Jenny, I think the the simplest way that one can epitomize in two minutes the differences between um, traditional approach and stance approach, and the, the implications for, for treatment outcomes would, would be some case history. And I'll see how far I can get. Just stop me, Jan, uh, Janice, if I go too far. Um, it's just, uh, I was thinking about an example where a lady with close to 60 years of age came to our program, and she had, at that point, uh, history of 35 years of traditional psychiatric treatment 12 years of psychoanalysis four years of other uh, psychotherapies about well, 15 16 years of of psychopharmacological treatment all the antidepressants that I could see in 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 the in the listing and yet it had absolutely no uh, results well, I had no, no benefits. The, the depression that started right at the end of adolescence, at the beginning of her end of life, was still coming back in the same results. And I had a difficulty examining her. We usually assess people for about four hours to get a good understanding of the story. And it was difficult because she was, instead of telling me what, what troubles her, she was throwing at me different kinds of psychoanalytic interpretations, you know, extra complex and what, what happened with her mother and how she interjected the, the hate or dislike of her mother into herself and how that created the feelings of depression. Um, so, without going into further details, I can do that maybe in, in the discussion if, if you want. Essentially, Three sessions of, of holotropic, we, we still tried one newest entirely person, didn't do anything. Um, she heard about holotropic press work. We had groups going, so we included her. And within three sessions, in the third session, she had mystical experience. And there were interesting relationship between some of the this depression description and what she was experiencing, holotropic work, but during the third session, she encountered, she had a very frightening experience that uh, she attached, she was in the crib, so it must've been in the first couple of months of her life and her mother was coming through the, through the uh, corridor and coming to the door. She had that sort of panic experience and uh, that cleared up during the third session. She had a mystical, profound mystical experience. In the next 12 years, while I could follow her, she was free of depression, free of distress. She was able to fix her marriage that was in shambles. She, She was not really, she had just as a long affair, one night stand once a month, She was able to straighten out the marriage, straighten out her situation, leave the the, the affair. And for the next 12 years, she was free of depressions. Then they moved away. And uh, I don't know afterwards, but it was such a dramatic difference compared to those 35 years of of traditional treatment that just did not go deep enough. Yes, she remembered the negative feelings about the mother, but of course did not, did not have the, the ex- experience where she needed to release the, the strangulated energy that was kept there and pr- presumably was blocking the inner healer, blocking the, the, the self-regulation that, that then was able to, to take place. So I'll leave it at that, I could go in more details, but hopefully that gives you you an idea.
2: Thank you, Paul. Your compassion and wisdom sang through that story. Thank you for sharing that and taking the time to share it.
6: Did I make it in 10 minutes?
2: No, but we're we're not talking about that. We're going forward. You did fine. Y'all did fine. We're gonna see if Peter gives us a few minutes for one question for all of you, or if Peter, you feel we should stop here. I have a general question to ask. If we might be given five more minutes, but I'll check in with our organ. Yeah,
1: that's 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 okay. Um, as long as we're by a quarter till.
2: Okay.
6: Well, I have to say I was, I was disappointed with Peter because as he was introducing everybody through the first and second panel, he, he would usually say, uh, this person trained with Stan for two years, three years, four years. I trained with Stan for 86 years. <laughs> high water and hell. And he didn't mention anything. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But in the nick of time, you remembered to say that, Paul. <laughs> and congratulations to you. You have blazed your own trail over 500 publications and work in many universities here in the EU. Congratulations to you. And now we get to have more from you along with everyone else on the panel. Thank you, Paul, uh, Peter, for giving us some extra time. I'd like to draw the panelists' attention to the chat. If you get a chance, while we have these next few minutes before this ends, there are some really interesting questions in the chat for each of you individually. But I'm going to take um, the bull by the horns here and give you a question that's for all of you. And you can each take a moment to think about this. And I'd love very much if two or three of you could say something to this, and perhaps we can leave a couple minutes for everyone to pose their ideas. So in a summation of what you've all said, we've learned that transcendent sex, psychedelic use, and meditation all can lead to egoic, beyond the ego healing, on the one hand, and foster emergence of profound, life-changing non-dual experiences on the other hand. We are on the brink of environmental chaos on our dear planet Earth with very dire need for a significant evolution and consciousness for our species, which is doing most of the damage on the planet, perhaps most all of it. What do you think Dr. Stanislav Grof's lasting contributions are to paths for a crucial, crucial evolution of human consciousness so emphatically needed today. What do you think Stan's lasting contributions are to the paths for crucial, dire need evolution among us in human consciousness? Because it's there, we know it's there. Would you like to speak to that? his lasting contributions going forward.
3: Yeah, that's maybe I'd like to say something. I think Stan's valorization of um, mystical states is really important at this time because those states uh, frequently lead to a vision of interbeing, to, to use a term coined by Thich Han. Of interconnection, of interdependence, and interpenetration, where we begin to realize that we are not separate from the context of our lived experience, and that as individuals, in, in, from the point of view of Teilhard de Chardin, where consciousness has evolved to a certain point, where the sense of responsibility in relation to the well-being of not only ourselves as individuals but of all species. That sensibility uh, is in the marrow of our being. And so, you know, I feel that uh, Stan's cartography has actually given um, permission to uh, many individuals to enter into these states to see in a way that is different from the conventional view of reality that's held by most human beings.
6: I would second that, uh... I think we have to start with ourselves and, you know, changing our consciousness. If you're gonna have a proper non-ordinary states of consciousness, positive experiences so towards mystical, in thirty percent of the population, I think the chaos will be resolved. May it
2: be
0: so. Yeah, I agree that in the way this is a segue to what I was trying to come up with when you asked me what else I wanted to add, which was about, you know, what I learned, what you learned from Stan is the importance of doing our own work if we're gonna work with other people. And that's, as Paul said, that's a different model from the one where there's something wrong with you and I've got the answer, that is interbeing. And so I think that's the idea that this is work that we all need to do as human beings. Uh, that leads into the possibility of planetary change.
4: If, if I might add simply that the, the, these treatment models Stan has developed, you know, are are transformative in their potentialities. And, they're, they're, and I see them as wake-up medicine. And this, to me, was uh, a point driven home when I, I did some field research and. The Brazilian Amazon many years ago with members of an ayahuasca church, and uh, w- was quite taken aback as to the, 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 how many of these individuals were environmental activists. That they their work with ayahuasca, particularly in the rainforest setting, had had really facilitated a powerful cathexis to to nature and a a sense of responsibility that. Uh, that the necessity to heal nature and heal nature from the, the ravages of, of the human species. So again, I, Stan has given us uh, some paths to, uh, to wake up and, uh, and, and transform and uh, for there to be a viable future. This, this has to happen. And we're most fortunate to be the uh, recipients of what uh, Stan has, uh, has, has outlined for us.
2: Anyone else have some further thoughts on this? So what I'd like to share with the audience is, as you've heard everyone speak, I'd like to offer this, that what you've witnessed is what selfless service looks like among people. Five individuals coming from different points of view all affected by the work of Dr. Stan Grof and all bringing in their particular wisdom, intelligence, and embodiment to extending the work. And there are students and trainees working with each of these five panelists who are learning their version of how to acknowledge our interbeingness and our need to help one another and the four-legged and the winged ones and all beings on this very precious planet. Thank you to Stan. Thank you to all the people who've loved you, Stan. Thank you to all the people you've loved and fostered. Love is a way to move this forward, but also courage is needed as you've heard and seen in these speakers. So dear audience, please be inspired by the courage and the loving kindness that you have witnessed here. This is not that accessible on this planet right now in a group like this of 300 people. So thank you to Synergetic Press and City Lights and Maps for bringing us all together. I'll turn this over to Peter and final thank you to Stan at this moment.
1: Wow, that was a most stimulating cross-section of experience coming from each of you. And it's such, such a great gift. Janice Phelps, thank you for crafting such a thoughtful and beautiful trajectory for the session. Michael Mitho for Roshi Joan Halifax, Charles Grove, Paul Groff. Uh, my apologies for the 80 years. <laughs> Next time. And Jenny Wade all of you who have joined us today. Thank you so much. That does wrap up this session. Um, Like to remind everyone we have posted links with which you may purchase copies of Psyche Unbound. Our series comes to a close with the next session. It'll begin at 3 p.m. It's called Comparative and Theoretical Studies, Current Applications and Future Paradigms of Therapeutic Practice. It will feature Maria Mangini as the moderator with appearances by Tom Redlinger, Tom Roberts, Diana Haug, Jasmine Verdi, and John Buchanan. We hope to see you there. Be well, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights bookstore and publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free to see upcoming events at City Lights bookstore in San Francisco check out www.citylights.com slash events.